You're listening to the Sustainable Angler Podcast. I'm your host, Rick Crawford. In this episode, I interview documentary filmmaker Gray Gowder, and we talk about his upcoming film project, Sea Change, which is an environmental adventure documentary that follows two American educators from Charleston, South Carolina, on a two-year circumnavigation of the globe in a 40-foot sailboat to learn how local and international organizations collaborate with island and coastal community groups to repair and rebuild the natural systems around them to mitigate the effects of climate change locally while restoring healthy oceans locally. Hope you enjoy. This episode of the Sustainable Angler Podcast is brought to you by Emerger Strategies, a sustainable business consultancy whose mission is to solve the climate crisis by helping your business go carbon neutral and zero waste. To learn more, visit EmergerStrategies.com. Hey, I also wanted to take this opportunity um, to tell you about the Fly Fishing Climate Alliance, uh, which is an alliance of guides, shops, lodges, brands, and nonprofits um, who are committed to going carbon neutral by 2030. Um, and we're hosting a national call in day on Friday, October 16th uh, for anglers to contact their elected officials and tell them that it is time to act on climate. Uh, So you can learn more about how to take action at EmergerStrategies.com. All right, thanks for listening to the Sustainable Angler Podcast. I have Gray Gowder joining today. He is the director of the sea change documentary, which we're going to learn a lot more about today. And uh, really excited to, to have you on the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I'm, I'm excited to talk about this and talk about the work that uh, you're doing here in the low country. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, yeah, so Gray, I, I, I had a, originally um, come across the project through another uh, company here, Get, Get Outpost and, and podcast, and, and they have a marketing agency, um, great guys over there. But um, since then, I've started to follow Apparent Wins, which is a, um, a they have a YouTube channel and, and, and is associated with your film. But without me putting words in, in, into that, could you uh, go a little bit more in depth. What is Sea Change documentary? What is Apparent Wins? How's that all working together? Yeah. Uh, so um, uh, January of 2019, uh, Zach Pure and Trip Brower, two uh, local guys here from uh, from Charleston, uh, came to me with a big idea. Uh, they wanted to uh, sail around the world, and we were looking for a way to to tell that story and what stories were, were there for this, this unique opportunity that they were about to have. Uh, and just in sitting on, on the boat that they're currently using to sail around the world, uh, we realized 
what a unique opportunity this was because a lot of the islands and coastal communities that they would be visiting along the way uh, are going to be fundamentally different within a very short amount of time if uh, things continue as as they are. Because uh, uh, between sea level rise and our changing weather patterns and the changing uh, ecology of, uh, of our oceans and coastal areas, uh, the very uh, natural systems that these communities uh, um, derive their cultures from and rely on economically and personally um, are, are changing. And uh, so we wanted to, to document that. We wanted to see uh, what life is like for these people. And as we were researching that, we realized that a lot of these communities, like Charleston, uh, have a conservation infrastructure, uh, whether that's more of a citizen science-based or a nonprofit-based or uh, more of a professional scientific base. There are a, a lot of communities that are taking ownership of the vital natural systems that define Uh, things like their their coral reefs or their seagrass beds or their uh, salt marshes or uh, mangrove forests or, or, or the the keystone um, uh, natural systems that uh, allow uh, life to exist as it is and exist in a healthy way uh, around their community and and has been that way for for generations. So uh, we realized how how incredible of a story that could be. To, to see how people are working to mitigate the effects of climate change and uh, rebuild their natural world to create a sense of resilience uh, for us going forward. Because in the end, we wanted to tell a story about hope. Um, we've seen enough uh, movies and uh, heard enough uh, interviews and, and read enough uh, uh, content that is is uh, full of, uh, of worry, despair, and warnings uh, about the very real threats that are out there. And we wanted to find uh, stories of, of people, uh, ordinary people, uh, trying to make a difference so that uh, the people who watch this film, the people that we interact with, the education outreach that we're hoping to do with school children through aquariums and through uh, um, uh, my other nonprofit, Enduring Curiosity, uh, how how we can give school children and their families the opportunity to to feel hopeful about um, about their future and give them concrete tools and uh, to be able to go out into their surrounding uh, uh, natural world and be able to make a difference rebuilding it and creating greater resiliency going forward. Yeah. No. So so all absolutely love all that and and and. A, few things I was jotting some notes down um that I think it's important to to cover which frankly I don't think a lot of people are um aware of in terms of the ecosystem services and natural climate solutions that are available um that we you know we take for granted even here in the low country is is all of our marshes and marshlands mm -hmm. and that those sequester carbon you mentioned mangroves those um, sequester a ton of carbon. Um, so there's, there's a lot of natural climate solutions out there and people are rebuilding them. Um, I know that I've done some volunteer work here locally um, 
through nonprofits like Charleston Waterkeeper and Low Country Land Trust, but um, with South Carolina DNR, where they're they're going in and in addition to rebuilding oyster reefs, they're also uh, planting Spartina grass. Absolutely. Yeah. And that's a big part of what we're hoping to do uh, here. A lot of these people we're working with are uh, affiliated with um, uh, renowned oceanographer Sylvia Earle's um, foundation, Mission Blue. And uh, they operate these places that are called Hope Spots. And Hope Spots are uh, locally managed uh, marine protected areas or uh, zones of interest that have uh, specific natural systems or rare biodiversity or something about it that makes it uh, makes it important uh, to that region and potentially globally. And her goal is to, by the end of this decade, uh, have um, uh, at least 30% of our world's oceans and coastal areas protected, which uh, doesn't seem like a lot, but currently we're in single digits for uh, protected areas. And uh, our goal is to use this expedition, use this movie uh, to to go out and meet some of these Hope Spot ambassadors, learn what Hope Spot is, how these other people are managing their Hope Spots, and how we can um, work with the conservation organizations here to build uh, a network of, uh, of educational groups, conservation organizations, uh, federal, state, and local, um, and municipality organizations, community groups, uh, to have a, uh, a Carolina Sea Islands hope spot where we are uh, protecting and encouraging education and uh, resilient action uh, in these areas so that we can maintain access and maintain uh, healthy and responsible uh, interaction between our communities and uh, the, the natural landscapes and the the uh, species that that call this area home, and and you're absolutely right. Replanting Spartina grass, uh, uh, planting our, our uh, oyster reefs, which are huge for water control and for uh, habitat uh, creation, and for creating nurseries for uh, our fisheries, uh, among a, a vast uh, uh, number of of benefits, uh, are certainly a part of that, and uh, we're hoping to to um, build that coalition over the next year during this pause in our filmmaking um, efforts due to coronavirus and then uh, move on and keep working uh, with our partners here to, to see how we can, we can um, create a, a resilient and engaged population for, for years to come. Uh, that's great. Uh, I, I love that. And, and you have also talked about um, by the way, the fact that we're in the middle of this, this global pandemic and uh, the coronavirus, obviously, and how we're all having to, I think, make adjustments and, and uh, you know, frankly, be be resilient during this challenging time. But um, how has this how has the coronavirus affected the, the filming? Because the idea was. Uh, the J. Henry is the boat, and 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 they were going to sail around, circumnavigate the world, try, hit, visit these hope spots, and um, you were going to film that and, and turn this into the sea change documentary. How has this affected? How has coronavirus affected the 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 film? 
Well, that's a, that's at least a two-part answer there to that question, <laughs> but I'll, I'll start with the expedition and then I'll talk about the movie. Um, uh, for the expedition, this is uh, much more than just a scheduling thing. This is a life and death uh, scenario for these guys because um, they are truly isolated, uh, uh, which can be a positive thing in in some cases, but can also be a very dangerous thing if uh, if for some reason um, uh, they they come into contact with coronavirus. Uh, so uh, they're currently in uh, the Marquesas Archipelago, which is is part of French Polynesia. It's northeast of Tahiti, and uh, that's where they uh, arrived after a little over a 30-day passage from the Galapagos Islands uh, back in February. And uh, currently, Tripp, who's the the captain of the boat, uh, one of the two members of this expedition, has finally, uh, after being uh, anchored in place since March 13th, uh, been allowed to uh, come on to, to land uh, because he's been quarantined on the boat for that whole time. Uh, and meanwhile, Zach, uh, our other member of the, the expedition, um, uh, was uh, evacuated. Uh, he's safe, but he's uh, been evacuated uh, back to Charleston, where he's uh, uh, working to create content for y'all to watch on YouTube. But um, it, it certainly changed the way we're we're approaching this on an expedition side because we're trying to figure out, okay, how can we um, uh, keep these guys safe? How can we keep the uh, the people that we meet along the way safe? How can we prevent this expedition from um, uh, unintentionally being uh, a, a spreading factor in, in this pandemic. Um, and, and so that's going to be something we have to, to keep in mind as uh, Trip plans on uh, making his way to Australia in, in the near future, which we hope he'll be able to do safely. Um, uh, but how is he going to be able to do that? What kind of quarantine restrictions are going to be in place uh, once he gets there, is he going to be able to stop at any of the other um, islands from French Polynesia to, to Fiji through there? Or is it going to be another straight shot? Um, which would be unfortunate because uh, I know he was uh, very much looking forward to to seeing the uh, amazing diversity of, of uh, culture and life everything through through those through those islands. Um, but uh, hopefully he'll be able to make it to to Australia safety or safely, and um, that's where Zach intends to to rejoin him if uh, that's possible. Uh, as far as the film goes, uh, it has pushed out our timetable a little bit and has shifted how we're going to tell the story. Um, initially, the story was going to be uh, specifically about um, uh, us being with them through some of these different uh, steps. Um, the story begins with uh, a TED Talk from 2009 given by Sylvia Earle um, that's encouraging people to go out into the world and um, use films and expeditions and new technology to try and tell the story of why uh, protecting our oceans and rebuilding the natural systems that are key to them is so important to our world, and so that that's our our catalyst, our inciting incident right there that's propelling us out into the middle of this expedition. Uh, so now, 
um, we have accidentally gotten uh, a key factor for filmmaking, uh, which is conflict. Uh, and <laughs> having uh, this quarantine and coronavirus and this massive disruption to not just the creation of this film or the completion of the expedition, but to life as, as we know it across the world uh, is a massive amount of conflict. And on top of that, uh, we have uh, um, uh, people looking at the world and, and, and seeing the profound changes that are happening around us as uh, industrial action and um, uh, pollution levels and uh, human impact on, on our world are, are scaled back in this grand experiment where um, skies are clearing and wildflowers and pollinators are, are bouncing back and they're hearing birds in some cities in China for the first time in years. And in India, they're seeing the Himalayas uh, from rooftops for the first time and in a generation. And uh, Venice, you have fins and fish returning to, to crystal clear canals. And, and you're even seeing some changes here uh, in the United States. And it's, it's remarkable because uh, it's forcing us to, to not only see that our world is capable of healing, but it's it's this other opportunity to to um, see or to, to ask a big question uh, for for our world. It's uh, do we find ways to to uh, help uh, these natural systems continue on their way to recovering? Or do do we give nature a fighting chance now that it's starting to recover? Or do we snuff that out in a second? And um, uh, I think it shows what what an electrified world of renewable energy and electric vehicles and um, dramatically lower uh, pollution can can look like. And um, it is an indication of what uh, um, the whole premise of our our story is. It's it's what is what does our future look like if we give the natural world a fighting chance to, to rebuild itself. Um, uh, I think we're getting a really unique opportunity at seeing that. And so when we resume filming, um, whenever it's safe to travel again, uh, whenever it's safe to go out to visit these hope spots, again, that's going to be a big part of our focus is uh, how have things changed uh, since uh, before the global lockdown and, and, um, how are are these communities adapting to that? How how is the the natural system adapting to that? And um, uh, we're going to be continuing the expedition that we intended to, but in a different way. Yeah. So so that is amazing. Um, I uh, hearing about you know the really um, us giving nature a chance i guess i guess maybe amazing is not the word i think it's um really important to understand what what is happening uh, around the world is sort of this coronavirus has crippled us and um y'all y'all have made your um you're having to make your adjustments and uh with the film and everything else but also it will be incredible to see 
if y'all are able to film some of that, like how, how that's even affecting those hope spots, right? To be able to see, all right, well, they were already doing some things that were really good. Now, has this really accelerated um, how quickly um, those areas can recover, um, which I think will be interesting to see. Certainly. And uh, the hope spots are hopefully indicative of uh, of, of the world as a whole. Um, we, we hope that they're just a, a small sample size of, of what other areas could look like as well. Yeah. And, and one of the things that you said, too, is, you know, how we can start to um, look towards, you know, a clean energy future, renewable energy, electric vehicles, things of that um, nature, which are really critical in terms of solving climate change on a global scale is to move away from fossil fuels um, because that is what is causing climate change, man-made anthropogenic climate change is burning fossil fuels. So I, I saw this and I can't remember the guy's name, but it is along the same lines that, that what we're talking about was basically he was saying, well, you're seeing exactly how worthless fossil fuels are if there's no consumption. They're, they're, they're having to pay people to take, but there's nowhere to put the oil. We have an oversupply of it um, and there's zero demand for it because people aren't consuming. Mm-hmm. And so I think that that poses an interesting thought is, you know, how much do we all... I guess, have a hand in this and should we be rethinking the way that we do everything? And that includes how we get our energy. That includes how we get the clothes on our back, meeting our basic needs, food, clothing, shelter. And I think that that's a positive that can come out of this, I think. Certainly. And um, uh, the end that we envisioned for the film um, is the uh, as the expedition returning to Charleston with this new uh, information with these these tools by which uh, our community directly in the film signifying Charleston but but in a in a more metaphorical sense representing the world uh, can begin to uh, to um, uh, have a have a systems change in how we uh, begin to work, and uh, I, I think that's going to be become more and more of of our focus. Is it's not just going to be on the education. When we get to the end of the story, we're actually at the beginning of a new uh, opportunity because uh, our global system, our our the way we live, has been so uh, incredibly disrupted that we've got a, a unique opportunity to, to build something uh, new out of that. And uh, I, I think the individual has, has a big part that they can play in that because uh, while it's certainly gonna take um, uh, the actions of our, of our federal governments and of our local and state governments uh, to, to uh, institute or push, or push forward uh, some of these changes. I think we as, as uh, stewards of our communities, stewards of our natural environment, and as consumers, uh, we'll be able to have a, a pretty big say in, in what life looks like on the other side of this. Yeah, yeah I, I, I couldn't agree more with you. And um, I think that that's a, hopefully a, a really strong uh, message that anyone listening uh, takes away is that, you know, you, the individual can make a difference. But to your point, 
in order to scale, um, I think what is necessary, you do need participation from government. And so it's um, on, on the policy front. And um, so anyway, it's just a, a, a random point. I, I, I've learned a lot doing these interviews with different people. And um, that was a, a key takeaway from from one of the interviews that I've done. They said, yes, you know, the the individual can certainly make a difference and sh- everyone should be uh, trying to make an impact at the same time, influencing our elected officials to, to act on climate change because they can um, accelerate our, our transition through policy. Definitely. The resources that can come to bear are, are just an order of magnitude higher if we can uh, get, uh, get federal or state institutions involved. Um, that's uh, and that, a lot of that just comes from from them seeing the trends happening. So it could either start at the top or it could start from grassroots, but there needs to be momentum one way or the other. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, great. So let's let's learn a little bit more about uh, about you. So this is okay. so what what is your back? How did you get into filmmaking? Uh, what's your background? Where are you from? The the get, l- l- let's do the. Who, who is gray? How did you get here? <laughs> uh, well, I'm a Charleston native, born and raised, and have just uh, moved back here uh, full time to uh, to work on on sea change and building the uh, Carolina Sea Island Hope Spot and uh, my um, education through media nonprofit and during curiosity. Uh, I've come back uh, here because there's so much potential and there's so many stories that I want to tell that that have to do with the low country um, I'm uh, fascinated by by history and by culture and uh, the way uh, um, the, the the world around us and the stories that we tell uh, help to define who we are and and what we're going to do uh, and so um, I I started my path towards filmmaking uh, at the College of William and Mary in Virginia uh, as a history major, uh, but I also studied theater and um, uh, cultural anthropology and uh, music anthropology there to, to learn um, kind of uh, how stories work and what, what are some stories that I could tell. Uh, and from there, uh, came to Trident Technical College uh, in in Charleston and um, did about a year of uh, technical um, uh, study in, in film production there before getting my master's degree at the Savannah College of Art and Design, um, where I graduated a couple years ago nice. uh, in uh, um, producing and directing there. Uh, and since then, I've, I've worked freelance and um, then have recently uh, uh, moved over to having my own production company. And uh, I've got a few different projects going on right now. Sea Change is the big one, uh, which I'm, I'm uh, thrilled about, and got a couple of smaller ones um, uh, that are loosely connected to that. One of them is about a rare uh, species of, uh, of a flowering uh, uh, tea tree family uh, plant named after Benjamin Franklin. It's called Franklinia, and it only lived in a small stretch of uh, the Altamaha River in uh, coastal Georgia. And that this was back in in the 18th century, uh, and uh, uh, William Bartram, who's the founder of, uh, or, or who's the uh, the son of um, uh, John Bartram, a uh, major naturalist here uh, in uh, in the United States, uh, found this when he was doing 
uh, an exploration uh, or expedition down there to try and find rare plants to sell to to England and uh, came across this this remarkable species of, of flowering tree and uh, brought it home, planted it in its garden. And by the 1820s, the only survivors of uh, of this species were either living in his garden or were uh, descendants of those species that were living in his garden. Wow, and that's so super interesting. Yeah, and currently uh, the University of Georgia are trying to um, bring back uh, the, the species and see if they can reintroduce it because um, a, a microorganism called uh, Phytophthora is now living in a lot of our coastal soil and that causes something called root rot. And root rot is a problem for chestnut, for rhododendron, for franklinia, and for a lot of our other uh, woody shrubs and trees uh, here in uh, in the southeast. And so, uh, if she can find a way, if Heather um, Glad, uh, if Heather Gladfelter, who's the lead on that, can can find a way to uh, to make uh, these plants phytophthora resistant, then we might get get a chance to uh, return a technically extinct species to its natural habitat in coastal Georgia. Wow, that's super cool. And and so one of the things, by the way, I just have to give a, because it sounds like we're we're both sons of the low country. I, I was, and you said you went to SCAD. So I'm, I was born and raised in Savannah. Um, so I love that you're sort of focusing a lot of these efforts to our uh, neck of the woods, which I am equally as fascinated with the history um, a- as well as the environmental conservation side of of where we live, which I think are stories that don't get as much attention um, than I don't know, you know, than the 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 glaciers melting in in Montana, you know, for example, um, when it comes to climate change. Definitely, definitely. And um, I mean, you've got big stories and you've got uh, more regional stories. And sometimes the regional stories become more uh, universal than, than we were aware of. Yeah. And so and so one, I, I'll just say this because I think, you, you know, we're, you're uh, very much in, in involved in the storytelling component of this. Um, but I'll also just talk about a little, you know, what are we seeing here in the low country um, from a from a climate change front and, and the things that I think that we see here in Charleston a lot is, is more flooding as a result of sea level rise. Mm-hmm. Um, but also, you know, more intense hurricanes and storms. Now, flooding is 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 a real issue. Uh, and um, uh, I think we have a unique opportunity to look at um, other flood mitigation opportunities that are maybe natural examples. Um, our, our marsh grass ecosystems are, are really good at, at dealing with uh, floodwaters. And so uh, how can we, we build uh, green walls, green natural uh, uh, sinks for not just our carbon, but for our, our, our water uh, instead of building um, uh, hard gray structures. So uh, instead of building a giant seawall, how can we uh, find a way to, to um, uh, use uh, a natural system that can benefit the harbor uh, as a whole instead of putting up a wall that's only going to create more erosion over time? Yeah. 
Yeah, I, I, absolutely. And I, and I know that's a big topic right now in Charleston is, um, is, is how to address the flooding. It comes up every election cycle, whether it's with the mayor um, or, or, or local um, elected officials, is what are we going to do about flooding here? Because it is increasingly every year there's more flooding. Um, I have noticed as an angler, who I, I fish the flood tides for redfish a lot. Um, pretty consistently, if I look at the tide chart, so for anyone listening to this who's not aware, in Charleston, we have about an average tidal swing of five feet. Um, when there's full moons and new moons, we get what's called a flood tide, and that's when you go fish for tailing redfish. And if if the tide chart is calling for like a five, nine or a six foot tide. I started noticing this last year. They were always higher than, cause you get used to like certain flats, like, or at least I do. Cause I, I have, a, I just have a kayak. So I kayak to a lot of the same flats and I'll know when the right tides are at certain flats for like the perfect size flood that I'm looking for, for redfish. And for one particular flat, it was uh, a five nine was like ideal. Well, I've also fished them where they're six four or six five, and that's what I was seeing when the tide chart was saying a five nine. So, if that wasn't too confusing, basically the tides are bigger than what the tide charts are predicting them to be. And I think you know you could say some of that's wind, but I think it happened consistently enough to rule wind out. And that they're actually, we're just getting, we're, we're getting bigger tides in general, um, which I would attribute to sea level rise, um, which is kind of interesting. Um, but I've talked to other uh, friends of mine who fish and everyone's kind of had similar experiences. They're like, yeah, the tides just seem to be a little bit bigger when, than what they're forecasting um, when, you know, when you get used to fishing certain areas and know when the right tides are. Oh, yeah. Yeah, certainly. And um, uh, we're going to have to look at um, all those those uh, wonderfully placed uh, lots that are right there waterfront, you know, yep, yep. <laughs> how, how viable are those? Um, how viable is is uh, living right right on a creek um, uh, without any any uh, uh um, trees or, or, or shrubs or, or marsh in front of that. Um, that's going to be a big, a big conversation that uh, people are going to need to have on an individual basis. And I'm sure the insurance companies are already talking about uh, right now with um, the threat of storms uh, becoming greater for us here. Uh, but uh, going back to, to fishing and uh, redfish uh, for a moment, we, we also need to look at, um, how can we uh, allow the, the the marshes and the places that are the nurseries for for these fish that we rely on for recreation and for for uh, the seafood industry uh, to continue to thrive and to to be even even more uh, abundant uh, and um, so that's something I look forward to to working with um, a waterkeeper and the uh, Department of Natural Resources and and uh, the aquarium among others to see what what they're hoping to do uh to to keep uh, our our uh, marshes uh, ahead of uh, the rising seas because as as the uh, the water moves up the marsh is going to have to to um uh, ad advance either inland or uh become shallower because uh, it, it has a certain depth that it can 
it can uh, realistically survive in. Interesting. And that's something that I quite honestly haven't thought about the marsh having to change and adapt other than I know that I, th- I think it's something like globally, half of all marshlands have, have disappeared. I might be slightly off on that. It's it's even more than that, actually. It's um, uh, I, I've, I've seen it as high as, as three quarters of all uh, coastal marshes are, are gone, and uh, even more than that for coastal uh, shellfish reefs. Um, but we've actually done really, really well here uh, in the southeast. We have some of the healthiest uh, marsh and uh, shellfish reef ecosystems in the world. Interesting, and that, and that's a and that's another big thing too. Um, when I was living in, in in Savannah, that I had gotten involved with, and and have continued to do here. Uh, it was with the Georgia Department of National uh, Natural Resources, but and uh, South Carolina DNR does it here as well. But rebuilding those oyster reefs, which I know we mentioned earlier, um, but through that process and learning about that, and and you might know this better than I do, um, but it's my understanding that on the East Coast uh, of the United States, it's something compared compared to where they were historically, like a couple hundred years ago. Oysters are ninety ninety percent of them are gone. Yeah, um, absolutely, absolutely. And, and that's I mean that's that's pretty wild. And when you think about all the benefits that you get uh, from oysters, and not just cleaning the water and you know enhancing the fishery, uh, but also keeping like as we're talking about marshland disappearing. Well, hey, if if there's oyster built up, it can help to uh, prevent some of that marsh from eroding to begin with, I think. And, um, you know, I, I don't know if that's a natural solution for, for that building of uh, a wall, it, it, like we talked about earlier, um, but it could be part of that solution. It, it absolutely is. And that's something that uh, that's being looked at. Um, uh, the living shoreline um, uh, concept has been talked about for at least a decade now, but um, uh, for any, anyone who's interested in, in uh, learning more about uh, natural solutions to, to uh, coastal uh, erosion control and uh, coastal um, storm surge mitigation, um, uh, living shorelines are, are a fascinating thing to look at. And uh, that plays into um, a, a a larger conversation that's been going on since um, I think it was the '60s or '70s with uh, Oren Pilkey, who is is a, uh, a brilliant uh, coastal geologist uh, who who's been writing about um, uh, longshore drift and the idea of our our uh, coastal sea islands being a part of this uh, massive living uh, well not not uh, animate living but uh, um, uh, active system that constantly uh, feeds and rebuilds itself and, and uh, moves uh, in and in and uh, out from the coast over, over uh, um, uh, massive scales of time based on the height of the ocean and uh, the continued access to, uh, to sediments moving along our coast. And uh, one of the things that he's been writing about for, for decades is the uh, the real problem with having physical barriers, hard 
surfaces trying to catch sand because you're robbing the next island down and the next island down oh. from that. So, um, and the idea that building on islands is ludicrous because uh, uh, there's there's no reason to believe that anything but the maritime forest that is in the center of the island uh, is a good place to, to be. Uh, so Dewey's is actually a really good example of, of living on, on a, um, a merit, uh, in, in a maritime forest in a coastal area because they're taking full advantage of uh, the erosion control, the protection from storm surge, and the, um, uh, the, the ecosystem and the natural system that is there that protects that island. Uh, and so they might be a little bit more resilient than other islands that uh, have uh, cut down all of, all of their, their dune ecosystems, all the shrub grass, all the, the bushes, and then the, the trees that, that are there that are meant to trap sand. And so when the storm surge comes across and uh, takes down the dunes as it's supposed to, um, uh, it, it, doesn't just then have a clear path all the way across the island. It's uh, that energy is being broken up by uh, a living wall in this living shoreline as it's moving through uh, a variety of ecosystems towards the tidal creeks in the back. Interesting. And, and you know, that, that makes sense, right? They're called barrier islands for a reason. Mm -hmm. And now you, you think, you know, hindsight's twenty twenty, of course, but you think, you know, the beach in Savannah, Tybee Island, and certainly on Folly Beach, and, you know, the amount of money they're spending and trying to keep that shoreline in place to protect the houses, um, you know, and, and I'm sure every coastal barrier island is doing that, right? You know, you're trying to pr protect people's homes, but it's just, it's unnatural. It's not, you know, so historically, it's not supposed to be that way. Um, if you were, as you, as you said, if you were in the middle of that maritime forest, the coast could, could do its thing and you wouldn't have to worry about it as much. Yeah. And uh, barrier islands aren't meant to be permanent structures either. They're, they're there to uh, be um, energy buffers for the coastline. And so they're only going to be I guess geologic time is different than human time. So uh, we don't necessarily have to, to worry about it. So somebody can, can uh, live their whole life in a barrier island in it, but we're, we're living in a more dynamic time now where sea levels are probably going to rise at a more elevated rate than, than we might've seen in the, in the near past. And so that's going to become, uh, a question of of how do we is there going to be a retreat from areas that uh, um, are watersheds? Or are we going to have to retreat from from coastal areas? And uh, that's that's a completely different conversation that uh, far more qualified people than me could spend hours talking about. Um, but but it's all a part of this this larger. Uh, coastal system that that we live in that we're only a small part of and that we have a responsibility to be uh, uh, a positive member in because we we have the capability of of engineering um, uh, natural solutions and natural benefits but we also have the potential to do very uh, 
human focused measures that can be disruptive, destructive, and uh, devastating to to the rest of our system by either removing specific elements from it or disrupting the chain that supports the entire natural system. And if we cause these natural systems to collapse, then uh, we're going to lose the things that we we love and that we rely on here anyway. Yeah, that's, that, that's exactly right. Um, well, let, let me, I, I don't know if you've heard of this book, Gray, but um, if you haven't, you should definitely check it out. And they, and they have this on their website too, because uh, what, what I'm thinking is I, I do want to um, shift gears just a little bit. And I know it is the focus of your film and talk about um, being hopeful um, in, in terms of, which is something that I, that I try and do in, in all of uh, my podcast is um, talk about these uh, stories that inspire. Cause as you mentioned earlier, you know, you get clubbed over the head with the stuff and, you know, it, it can get downright, uh, depressing. So one of these books that, that I, that I recommend to anyone, I don't know if you've seen this, but it's called project drawdown. Um, mm. and it's 100 solutions to solve global warming. And so that's something that, and they have every solution listed on their their website, and now they're coming out with an annual report. But for anyone, um, while we're waiting on the the the, the sea change uh, film to to to, uh, to make it to to, to the big screens, um, that's something that I think I, I've I've found a lot of hope in. Um, I don't know if you've heard about this, this project or not, but, um, it's really interesting. And it, and a lot of them are, are the natural climate solutions that we're talking about. Um, and also things that you wouldn't have suspected, um, such as educating women in in third world countries and, and things of that nature. So, um, if you haven't seen that, I recommend checking that out. Um, but, but anyone listening, um, I think they're, they have a, their own websites like Project Drawdown or Drawdown.org, something like that. But anyway, worth worth checking out if you're if you're looking uh, for for some hope. Definitely, and uh, I encourage your listeners to to go out and and look for uh, nonprofits, look for organizations that uh, are are making these these things happen, or helping communities make these things happen, because. Uh, that uh, having having those resources available is is such uh, a key element for so many of these these communities to be able to to make the um, constructive choice, the long term choice uh, to to be able to um, uh, shift the way their systems work, or to shift away from uh, a a, a nearer term um, answer to to be able to to create the kind of constructive change that, that we need to do on, on a global scale. Uh, a great example of that is the uh, Eden Reforestation Project. Uh, they work with communities around the world to, uh, to plant uh, mangroves and um, other, other trees, and they hire people out of those communities to be managers of these forests and to plant. And uh, by doing that, they are uh, rebuilding that uh, economy by giving people uh, a stable income. And they're also rebuilding uh, their their ecology. They're rebuilding their forests. They're changing 
uh, the climate in some cases, because if you take an arid area or a hot area and you put a bunch of tree cover, you cool it down, you create more moisture, you create uh, better soil in the long term. And uh, there are other organizations that are working on, on rebuilding the microbial life in our soil, which is going to be a huge, huge part of uh, carbon sequestration and the creation of uh, more vibrant ecosystems. That's a big part of our, our natural climate solution is, is the tiny, tiny little things that we take for granted and that we don't really think about in our soil and our oceans that are, are the building blocks of everything. Uh, and so uh, if, if people are looking for organizations to support or looking for um, educational opportunities out there, I, I um, highly recommend they, they take advantage of, of uh, this time that we're, we're cooped up inside to um, find new passions or to find uh, new opportunities to learn about, about their, their area. So as soon as uh, we're safely allowed to, to go back outside, we can go and can have a constructive uh, relationship with the world around us and we can be more educated participant in our, our community. That's awesome. Um, well, great. Let, let me ask you this: Are, are, are there um, where where can people find out more information about the film and uh, uh, apparent wins, um, so that they can um, help support y'all's work and 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 stay stay in touch? Uh, well, uh, we've got websites for, for both. Um, if you search apparent wins, uh, you can find, um, uh, their full gallery of, of media content. They've got an awesome, um, uh, satellite tracker, uh, that on their website. So, uh, they can post blogs and post images through there and you can see where they are in the world and can follow their progress. Uh, follow its progress on um, uh, if you search sea change documentary uh, you can find our, our website there um, we have uh, Instagram channels uh, for both of these uh, these entities and we also have uh, the apparent wins YouTube channel uh, I think every Wednesday they have a new episode coming up that um, uh, Zach is hard at work editing and uh, Trip is hard at work uh, uh, shooting new content overseas. And neither of these guys are trained filmmakers. So it's, it's uh, pure, authentic uh, storytelling from their perspective as, as they're looking to share their experiences with you. I love that. And and if there's somewhere, and this is just out of my own personal curiosity, because um, you seem to have your, your finger on a lot of a, a lot of good uh, information, um, especially about here in the Low Country on climate change. Um, you mentioned some nonprofits, or is there any other resources that you want to throw out there for folks looking to? find information, whether it's books, websites, nonprofits, to, to, uh, to look for more information on, on climate resiliency and, and, and climate change here in the low country? Well, the South Carolina Aquarium is, is the place to go. Uh, they have uh, an 
incredible website and um, uh, with uh, just stocked full of, of resources for people, uh, whether it's a teacher who wants to to um, create lesson plans for uh, for the, the students in, in their classroom or um, or it's uh, an interested uh, adult or interested child who wants to go and, and learn on their own. Uh, there, there's a lot of content there to, to learn about uh, our specific region through that. Um, I recommend following uh, Low Country Land Trust, the Coastal Conservation League, Charleston Waterkeeper, uh, Friends of Coastal South Carolina, South Carolina Department of Natural Resources, and um, and then just spread out through the web of all the different people they're working with. Um, we're going to be building uh, a website in in over the next year to um, uh, aggregate all of these different uh, organizations that are going to be part of the uh, um, Low Country uh, uh, Sea Island um, Hope Spot. Uh, we're going to bring together all, all of them in one place with uh, an easy to find uh, um, set of information about the specific work that these groups are doing and, and how they're hoping to work together going forward in that. But uh, they, they all are doing a wonderful job in education and outreach right now through their websites, through their uh, Instagram channels, their Twitter accounts, um, the full social, social media uh, array that they all have. Um, but um, um, especially right now, uh, we need to be uh, um, learning from and supporting our, our local aquarium uh, more than ever because uh, they rely on uh, their education outreach opportunities and their visitors to not only um, continue to provide the valuable services that they do for our community and for our, our bioregion, but also to uh, keep all these amazing uh, creatures that we, we can learn from uh, alive and to keep the, the uh, sea turtle hospital going, which is one of our great assets here in the low country. So uh, I recommend people going and, and uh, learning from and supporting uh, the South Carolina aquarium, however they can. Yeah, I'll, I will second that. We have, we are, um, our daughter is 19 months old now and we have our annual pass and it is our, uh, our go-to rainy day spot when, uh, when we're not in quarantine, but, um, it, it, it really is amazing. The aquarium in and of itself, but then also what they do, um, to benefit us all here in South Carolina, um, with, with the education and, and resources that they provide. Absolutely. Yeah. They're great people and we hope to continue working with them, uh, with, uh, the efforts that they, they, uh, uh, continue to offer for all of us. Awesome. Well, um, so everyone out there, um, check stay stay current uh with sea change just search sea change documentary um their website if you want to go straight to it is seachange-film.com um check out apparent wins on youtube make sure you're following uh these guys on instagram and on social and uh do what you can to support um their their mission in this project so um, Gray, I, I really appreciate you carving some time out for me today, and I'm looking forward to uh, following Bill's journey. Thank you for having me. It was uh, it was a lot of fun. 
Thanks for tuning in to the Sustainable Angler. Uh, Special thanks to Gray for joining me on the podcast today. Uh, You can find the Sustainable Angler anywhere you listen to podcasts, uh, whether that's iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, Stitcher. Um, And if you like what you're hearing, uh, don't forget to leave us a rating and review. Give us a follow or a like. That helps us out a lot. Thanks and have a great day.